and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, March 8, 2023. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. Starting on today's first page, our first article headline is CR Weighing Rising Costs on Flood Control Plain. City Expects New Numbers in Six Months but is Committed to Project by Marissa Payne. High inflation and construction cost spikes are prompting city officials to study the impact of growing expenses on its permanent flood control system. As originally envisioned, the city's massive infrastructure project of floodgates, levees, and pump stations is estimated to cost $750 million over an approximately 20-year time span, a figure already adjusted for, adjusted for inflation from the initial $550 million estimate. But City Manager Jeff Pomerantz recently said during a City Council session on the fiscal 2024 budget that the City will have to assess how the the economy has affected costs to build the flood control system. The inflation rate currently sits at 6.4%, nearly double the long-term average of nearly 3.3%, but it has hit highs of about 9% since the COVID-19 pandemic began. We will be having discussions with the City Council about some revision in the expenditure plan based on the kind of increases we're seeing for a number of these projects, Pomerantz said. The Public Works Department and other divisions of the City are drafting a plan that will be submitted to the Council likely within the next six months, Pomerantz said. We're deeply committed based on everything the City's doing to protect this community from flooding, but it's an expensive project, Pomerantz said. A mix of funding sources fuel construction of the system. The Iowa Flood Mitigation Board is slated to contribute up to $269 million. The Army Corps of Engineers is providing $117 million toward the work on the east side of the river. Of that federal contribution, $41 million is a loan. Under the Army Corps' cost-benefit formula, the west side was not eligible for funding. The cost of construction there exceeds the value of the buildings it would protect. In 2018, the City Council approved borrowing $264 million in general obligation bonds, to fund a system of protecting both sides of the river. That plan relies on a property tax levy increase of $0.22 per $1,000 in taxable value each year through fiscal 2029. Westside Protection received a boost when the council allocated $10 million in Federal American Rescue Plan Act money, speeding up flood control work in the Northwest Quadrant. The city also has received at least $15.5 million so far in grant money and continues to seek more. For instance, to support reconstruction of the 8th Avenue Bridge, city officials have resubmitted for a $22 million federal raise grant for the 2023 cycle. Cedar Rapids also has applied for a $50 million grant through the Federal Bridge Investment Program. The dollar Cedar Rapids has secured won't go as far as first planned, though, because of inflation, prompting the examination of where the unfunded gap stands today. That gap has likely grown beyond the initially projected $95 million. Pomerantz said the city would look to see whether additional dollars are needed, assess the design of projects and the scope of work remaining, and continue efforts to secure more funding. Public Works Director Bob Hammond said city staffers are working to ensure projects being built in the next decade or so will stay within the budget. We've looked at hundreds of projects, and part of that is to also determine when should we stage and phase these in order to get the best return on cash flow, bonding, on cost of construction, Hammond said. So we might accelerate some of these projects a little bit when we're through with that. The timeline for specific projects and the overall system will be clearer once the revised estimates are tallied, Hammond said. As an example, 
Hammond said a flood wall without any additional improvements costs an estimated $4,500 per foot. Adding in other items such as road improvements and trails adds thousands of dollars per foot, so that's the level of detail being considered in revised estimates. Plus, the overall project remains years from its finish line in the 2030s, Hammond said, with many projects still in the planning or design phases. The West Side in particular have just been planning concepts, so we really need to understand what these costs are really going to be, Hammond said. Other funding streams may still materialize. Also on today's front page, plan to reorganize Iowa State government advances. Iowa House is not expected to debate the bill this week by Aaron Murphy. A sweeping proposal to restructure the executive branch of Iowa State government took a key step toward becoming law by passing the Iowa Senate on Tuesday. Governor Kim Reynolds' proposal in the form of a nearly 1,600-page bill was approved only by her fellow Republicans in the Senate. Reynolds has argued that Iowa state government is overdue for restructuring, that a reorganization of this scope has not been conducted since the 1980s. She said her proposed reorganization will make state government more efficient and responsive to Iowans, and that it can be accomplished without laying off any state workers. The governor's office said some state positions that are currently vacant will be eliminated through attrition. The result will be a state government that will be aligned with the only reason that it exists, and that is to serve Iowans, Reynolds said earlier Tuesday at the Capitol, while speaking to a meeting of the Iowa Bankers Association. Democrats have argued the proposal streamlines state government to the point where it gives the governor too much authority and reiterated myriad concerns raised by state workers and advocates that believe some of the proposed changes will adversely impact some agencies and their services. The proposal is a power grab, plain and simple, said Senator Zach Walls, the Senate Democrats' leader from Coralville. The bill passed the Senate on a 34 to 15 mostly party-line vote. Senator Jason Schultz, a Republican from Schleswig who chairs the Senate's Committee on State Government and has been shepherding Reynolds' proposal through the legislative process, disputed the argument that the bill represents a power grab. We're taking departments, commissions, boards, entities, and placing them closer to the governor's chain of commands, Schultz said. Under the bill, the number of state agencies with directors who report directly to the governor would be reduced from 37 to 16. Myriad departments would be merged. For example, the Department of Cultural Affairs would merge with the Department of Administrative Services. The Iowa Finance Authority would merge with the Iowa Economic Development Authority. And the Department of Human Rights would merge with the Department of Health and Human Services. Among many other provisions, the proposal would create more agency leaders who were appointed by the governor and subject to Iowa Senate confirmation rather than being elected by state boards or commissions, and brings community-based corrections programs into the state's Department of Corrections. The proposal also would give the governor more leeway to pay directors higher salaries, which Reynolds has said is needed to recruit and retain top talent and streamline higher salaries by eliminating the need for bonuses would explicitly state that the state attorney general has the authority to prosecute cases without first consulting with the county attorney and would give the state attorney general's office exclusive jurisdiction over elections-related cases. Majority Republicans advanced the giant bill with only minor technical amendments. Nothing of substance in Reynolds' original proposal was changed. I've come to the conclusion that the homework has been done that the concerns, while they are legitimate concerns, but the answers I have received show that the homework has been done and this is a good bill, Schultz said. The Senate Democrats presented 11 amendments to the bill, mostly proposing to strike a proposed change to, and keep a state agency where it currently resides within state government. 
For example, Democrats proposed eliminating the attorney general jurisdiction language, preventing the dissolution of the State Board of Health, keeping community-based corrections programs more independent of the state and the Iowa Civil Rights, and keeping where they are the Iowa Civil Rights Commission, the State Consumer Advocates Office, and the Department of the Blind. Majority Republicans rejected each amendment by the Democrats. I wish we could have addressed more changes in this chamber rather than a complete rejection of any ideas the minority party had, said Representative Senate, said Senator Tenny Bissignano, a Democrat from Des Moines. Reynolds' proposal, Senate File 514, was informed by recommendations made in a 68-page report produced by a Virginia-based consulting firm. Guidehouse was paid nearly $1 million by the state, which used federal pandemic relief funds. And the last item on today's first page... DeSantis argues U.S. should be like Florida. Governor highlights conservatism ahead of possible presidential run by the Associated Press. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis positioned himself as the architect of a new conservative vision for the nation during a State of the State address on Tuesday that championed his aggressive stances through the pandemic and culture wars as a blueprint for Republican leadership. The address came at the outset of a 60-day legislative session that has added political significance because it is expected to serve as a platform for DeSantis' highly expected presidential campaign. We defied the experts, we bucked the elites, we ignored the chatter, we did it our way, the Florida way, DeSantis told lawmakers in Tallahassee. And the result is that we are number one destination for our fellow Americans who are looking for a better life. The legislature's Republican supermajority is eager to promote DeSantis' political prospects and is expected to rubber stamp virtually all of his agenda, which is packed with issues ranging from race to immigration to gender that could prove popular in a GOP presidential primary. In his speech, DeSantis ran through the conservative accomplishments of his tenure thus far and highlighted upcoming measures that will be popular with some Republican primary voters, such as a proposal to eliminate concealed firearms permits. Though the governor is unlikely to formally announce a presidential campaign before the legislature wraps up its work in May, he's already making big moves toward a White House bid. He participated in a high-profile donor retreat last week in Florida before traveling to California, where he delivered a broadside against what he argued were excesses of liberalism. Later this week, he'll travel for the first time this year to Iowa, which will host the nation's first Republican presidential caucus in 2024. He'll be joined Friday by Iowa Republican Governor Kim Reynolds, who will host a discussion with him in Des Moines and Davenport, an aide confirmed. Now moving to some local news inside the paper. Bruce Orchestra concert era comes to an end in CR. After 2022 double rainout, Orchestra Iowa is canceling its outdoor season opener by Diana Nolan. The rain that gave rise to Bruce Orchestra has spelled its ending. Orchestra Iowa's season opener launched in 2008 on the front lawn of Bruce Moore Mansion after flooding ravaged the orchestra's home in the Paramount Theater. But production costs have risen over the years, and with a double rain out in 2022, it's too big of a financial risk to continue the event, according to Tuesday's announcement from the orchestra. We know this is a disappointing outcome for so many in our community, Jeff Collier, the orchestra's CEO, said in a prepared statement. The collaboration between Bruce Moore and Orchestra Iowa has long been a treasured partnership, and we are immensely grateful to the team at Bruce Moore for their remarkable service to the greater arts community in Cedar Rapids, he noted. We are eager for the opportunity to continue the spirit of Bruce Moore Orchestra through new joint efforts between our teams. Orchestra Iowa will announce its 23-24 season lineup at concerts April 15th at the Paramount Theater in downtown Cedar Rapids and April 16th at Hancher Auditorium in Iowa City. 
At that time, a less expensive concert presentation that will retain a community focus will be unveiled. The outdoor event had become the orchestra's most expensive concert of the year, requiring an entire venue to be built on the lawn with stage, lighting, big screens, sound system, and other auxiliary features, not to mention paying the musicians, staff, and crew, and travel stipends and housing for performers. Bruce Orchestra each year loses easily in excess of $50,000. That's made up through donations and contributions throughout the year, Collier told the Gazette in 2022 after the double rainout. Since 2008, the event had been canceled only in 2020 with the pandemic and was rescheduled once after a rain delay in 2019. We have, already, we have always been acutely aware of the investments made in mounting Bruce Orchestra year after year, and the weather has cooperated kindly, Maestro Timothy Hankowicz said in Tuesday's announcement. I'm personally very sad to see this event come to an end, but I recognize that it is the most responsible path forward following last year's rainout. We have some exciting things in store at Orchestra Iowa, but first, we must close one chapter to start the next. Complaint. Marion Teen thought girlfriend was dead. 17-year-old is accused of asking friend to help him hide her body. By Emily Anderson. A Marion Teen is accused of beating up his girlfriend and then asking a friend to help dispose of her body, thinking he had killed her. Trevor Ray Dean, 17, is charged as an adult with willful, willful injury resulting in serious injury, a felony. According to a criminal complaint, Dean believed his girlfriend, who is a juvenile, was cheating on him. He invited her to his apartment in the 1300 block of Meadowview Drive on Friday, telling her he had a surprise for her. When she arrived, Dean started punching her in the face and body, breaking her teeth, nose, and orbital bone, the complaint states. Dean, according to the complaint, had been texting a friend before the assault, saying things like, something's finna gonna go down, wait till you see my knuckles after, and I'm finna all, let all my anger out. After the, after the attack, Dean took a video of the girl unconscious on the ground, gasping for air as her mouth and nose filled with blood. He also filmed his knuckles. She stopped gasping, and Dean texted his, girl, his friend that she was gone. He then asked for help disposing of her body, according to the complaint. According to the Marion Police Department, a relative of the girl learned of the beating and called the police. The girl was taken to the hospital with serious injuries and is recovering. Dean has an, had his initial appearance in court Tuesday. He is being held on $25,000 cash-only bond. Program plans new domestic violence shelter. Current DVIP facility has been at capacity since it first opened by Isabella Zaluska. The domestic violence intervention program is building a new emergency shelter in Johnson County for victims of intimate partner violence. Groundbreaking for the new $6 million facility is anticipated for early May, the organization said in a news release Tuesday. The new shelter will nearly double the capacity of the current facility, which was built in 1993. DVIP's current emergency shelter is at capacity 365 days each year and has been every day since the organization began in 1979, the news release said. The current emergency shelter has 40 beds and the new shelter will have at least 70 beds, with space that is adaptable if needed, said Altima Dia Peters, DVIP's Director of Community Engagement. The new shelter will be about 25,000 to 30,000 square feet, with additional 30,000 square feet for storage and staff offices. We are grateful to be moving forward with this new shelter to provide a safe haven for victims, survivors of domestic violence, DVIP Executive Director Christy Fortman Dozer said in a statement, adding the demand for emergency shelter services has continued to increase. In the past five years, DVIP has served 38% more victim survivors, Fortman Dozer said. 
it is vital for us to meet the increased need and update our space to provide the best possible services to those most vulnerable in our community. The facility will be a safe and secure space for victims of domestic violence, dating violence, stalking, and human trafficking. There will be a state-of-the-art security measures at the new facility to ensure safety for, for residents, staff, and volunteers. DVIP does not announce the location of its shelters. Medea Peters said safety and security has been part of the agency's history over the last 43 years. This new facility, she said, will have more technology, increased security in the parking area, and additional staff. The new shelter will have private suites, communal spaces, and resources and services to help victims and their children. Trained staff will be on site 24-7 to provide counseling, support, and advocacy services. DVIP will maintain both emergency and comprehensive services while the new shelter is being built, Medea Peters said. After the new shelter is built and residents are moved in, DVIP will begin to convert the shelter to another use. We will be excited to share as that phase approaches, but right now our energy is focused on the new shelter. But we will continue to operate and use the space that we have, Medea Peters said. To date, 70% of the $6 million project is funded, Medea Peters said. Individuals interested in making a donation can do so online or reach out to Medea Peters at alta at dbipiowa.org. Pipeline trial testimony focuses on survey notices. Landowners in Western Iowa seek to keep navigator surveys off their property by Jared Strong of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. The process navigator CO2 ventures used to notify landowners of their intentions to survey private properties was scrutinized Tuesday in the first of several expected court trials to determine whether the surveys should proceed. The case concerns Woodbury County farmland of William and Vicki Hulsey. It's against my property rights that they can come on my property anytime they want against my will, Vicki Hulsey testified Tuesday. She lives in Moville and has land north of that town and in the and that is in the proposed path of a carbon dioxide pipeline Navigator seeks to build. It's one of three such projects that would transport captured carbon dioxide away from ethanol plants for out-of-state sequestration or other commercial uses. The companies are allowed by Iowa law to survey land without fear of being charged with trespassing to help determine the potential pipeline routes and depths. They are required to hold informational meetings and send 10-day notices of the surveys to landowners and their tenants before doing the work. Navigator hired other companies to send the notifications to the landowners and to survey the land, said Ann Weishans, director of right-of-way for the company, when she testified Tuesday. She said there are a total of about 5,800 parcels of land in the project path, including nearly 4,000 in Iowa. Navigator sued four sets of landowners in Iowa last year who have blocked its access to their properties. Welshen said she doesn't know how many, pro how many others have also already in resisted the survey work, but said they represent a small minority. Brian Jordy, an Omaha, Nebraska attorney who is representing the Hulseys and other landowners, sought Tuesday to minimize Weissen's testimony because she often didn't have firsthand knowledge of the notices that went to landowners. Navigator did not call a witness from the company that it directed to send the notices. You may tell people what to do, but you have no knowledge if they did, correct? Jordy asked. Correct, Welshen said, adding that the company relied on the tracking numbers provided by the U.S. Postal Service for certified mailings as proof of service or refusal. The cases hinge on whether Navigator complied with state pipeline survey law and whether that law is constitutional. The law does not specifically address whether landowners need to accept the certified mailings to be notified, and Jordy argued that those who refused the mailings couldn't know what information they contained.
He further argued that state law requires the mailings to display the words delivered to addressee only on the outside of their envelopes. Wysons acknowledged that the envelope that went to the Hulseys did not have those words. Vicki Hulsey testified that she did not remember rejecting certified notices from Navigator. However, Daniel Rogers, who works for a company that was hired by Navigator to facilitate the survey work, testified Tuesday that Hulsey told him she had rejected them. Their conversation came after surveyors had completed part of their work but were told to leave the property. Rogers said he tried to set a time with Hulsey to finish the work, but she refused. He said he showed her a sample of the survey notice letter that the company had attempted to mail to her. The company did not send a separate mailing to William Hulsey, who lives at the Iowa Veterans Home in Marshalltown. Vicki Hulsey testified that her husband has dementia and would be unlikely to understand the notice. Due to his condition, she has power of attorney to make decisions for him. Because of that, notifying Vicki Hulsey has the same effect as notifying William Hulsey, Wysons said. As a power of attorney, we would send everything to Mrs. Hulsey, Wysons said. The company was not initially aware that the Hulseys have a tenant who farms part of their land. Such agreements are not typically part of the public record, and Navigator most often relies on landowners to reveal them. The company learned of the tenant as part of the lawsuit against the Hulseys and sent the notice in January. However, the tenant was not notified of the informational meeting, which happened in October 2021. District Judge Roger Saylor gave the attorneys about 10 days to submit any further written arguments before he decides whether to issue the company an injunction that grants access to the Hulsey's land. It's unclear when that decision might come. Here is today's Capital Notebook article, which covers the Iowa legislature. Senate passes legislation to loosen school requirements by the Gazette-Lee Des Moines Bureau. Iowa schools would have fewer requirements on what they teach and how they provide instruction under a bill the Iowa Senate passed Tuesday. Senate File 391, proposed by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds, removes a list of requirements on Iowa's public schools. Under the bill, schools would no longer be required to report a comprehensive improvement plan to the state. Schools could hire a person previously employed as a public librarian to be a school librarian rather than a certified teacher librarian. No more than five days or 30 hours of instruction could be delivered online. Community college instructors would be able to teach more classes at the high school level. Schools would be able to teach multiple sequential units of a subject in the same classroom. Requirements around financial literacy instruction, instruction regarding HIV and AIDS and world languages would be removed. Democrats put up amendments to reinstate certain requirements the bill removed, including the requirement that schools employ certified teacher librarians and offer four units of world languages, but they were voted down. The bill passed along party lines 33 to 16, with one senator not voting. It will need to pass in the House before heading to Governor Kim Reynolds' desk for a signature. Senator Tim Cranbrink, Republican of Fort Dodge, said schools still would have the option to offer all the classes they do now, but they would have more flexibility to offer the instruction they can best accommodate. This bill gives more local control to school districts and school boards in their requirements by allowing them flexibility within courses and offerings so that they are better able to structure class time based on their local situations and needs, Cranbrink said. But Democrats said the bill would result in dumbing down Iowa's education system by requiring fewer options to be offered and reducing opportunities. Flexibility is a euphemism here, said Senator Herman Kornbach, Democrat of Ames. Flexibility, what, really, what it really translates to, is a permission to cut. Attorney General challenges E15 rule. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd signed onto an intent to sue letter to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, pressuring the agency to alter 
a slated rule change to allow sales of E15 this summer. The EPA this month announced intentions to allow the sale of E15, gasoline blended with 15% ethanol, year-round, starting in April 2024. The fuel is restricted in the summer because of concerns about air pollution. The change was in response to a 2022 request from a bipartisan group of Midwest governors, including Governor Kim Reynolds, to allow the sale of E15 in the summer in their states. But Reynolds, Byrd, and other Iowa politicians have criticized the effective date of the rule, urging the agency to begin the waiver this year. With record high gas prices, consumers deserve relief and flexibility when paying at the pump, Byrd said in a news release. The EPA's failure to respond on time not only deprives hardworking Iowans of a cheaper, cleaner option, it's also a violation of the Clean Air Act. In the letter, Byrd and Nebraska Attorney General Mike Hilgers said the delay is implementing the, in implementing the rule is a constructive denial of the waivers the governors requested. TikTok investigation. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd joined nearly all other states in a court brief urging the social media app TikTok to comply with an investigation into alleged consumer protection violations. The attorneys general are investigating whether the company has negatively affected youth mental health and violated laws in the process. In a news release, Bird's office said the company failed to preserve relevant communications by allowing employees to send messages through an auto-deleting app, and what information they did provide was in an almost impossible-to-read format. Changes to cocktails to go. The Iowa House passed a bill that would make changes to the way Iowa restaurants and bars sell cocktails to go. The changes necessary to comply with federal open container laws and ensure that Iowa does not lose about $14.2 million in annual federal federal funding for bridge and road projects. Lawmakers passed and Governor Kim Reynolds signed into law in 2020, a measure that legalized the sale of mixed drinks or cocktails to go by certain liquor license holders. The measure was meant to help establishments that lost revenue in early in the COVID-19 pandemic when in-person dining largely ceased and to-go orders and deliveries became the norm. Currently under Iowa code, a mixed drink or cocktail to go may be transported in a sealed container and is not deemed an open container as long as the seal has not been compromised and includes a container with a sipping hole or other opening for a straw, which violates new federal regulations. Under House File 433, sealed container means one designed to prevent consumption without removal of a tamper-evident lid, cap, or seal. The following containers are not considered a sealed container under the bill a cup made of plastic intended for one-time use, a cup made of paper or foam, a cup with a hole that includes a tamper-evident seal, a vacuum or heat-sealed pouch. Reynolds appoints district judge. Governor Kim Reynolds has appointed Kristen Formanek of Ankeny to fill a vacancy created by the retirement of Polk County Associate District Judge Cynthia Moisen. Formanek currently serves as an assistant, assistant Polk County attorney and has served as an assistant Story County attorney. She received her undergraduate degree from the University of Iowa and her law degree from the University of Iowa College of Law. Willis Dady hosting annual Hops for Housing event. Downtown Cedar Rapids event will raise funds, awareness for homelessness by Marissa Payne. Have a good beer for a good cause. Willis Dady is hosting its eighth annual Hops for Housing fund and awareness raising event at the Veterans Memorial Building on the Second Avenue Bridge from 2.30 to 5.30 p.m. May 6th. Hops for Housing is the organization's largest fundraiser that brings together regional breweries, craft brew enthusiasts, and community members to enjoy beer. 
All the money raised will be will support Willis Dady's mission to empower those experiencing homelessness to build self-sufficient futures through advocacy, housing, and employment. The event comes at a time when the area has seen increases in the number of people who are homeless. Tickets purchased in advance from the Johnson Avenue High V at 1843 Johnson Avenue Northwest give exclusive access to a VIP hour before the general event. The VIP hour offers more intimate time with brewers, sponsors, and Willis Dady staff and board members. General admission tickets can be purchased for $35 at the door from 2.30 to 4 p.m. Those attending hops for housing must be 21 or older. IDs will be checked at entry. There will be live music, food vendors, and beer samples from a variety of regional brewers who will offer more than 100 different craft brews. Past brewers have included Big Grove Brewery, Lionbridge, Des Moines-based Confluence Brewing Company, among about 30 total brewers. As Willis Dady announces its partners, people may follow the event on, on the, face, the event Facebook page at facebook.com Willis Dady Hops for Housing. To RSVP to the event, people should visit a Facebook website. Attendees may park on the 2nd Avenue Bridge or adjoining downtown parking areas. Willis Dady asks that people drive responsibly and encourages carpooling or using rideshare services. For additional resources about Willis Dady, visit willisdady.org. Volunteers needed for Iowa River Cleanup July 9th to 14th. Iowa Project Aware is heading to the Iowa River this summer and it is seeking volunteers to come too. From July 9th to 14th, hundreds of volunteers from across the nation will embark on the six-day, five-night river cleanup adventure down 65 miles of the Iowa River from Marshalltown to Costa, going through Marshall, Tama, Benton, and Iowa counties. Registration is required to participate. Due to resource and space restrictions, participant numbers will be limited. Organizers expect a sellout, so interested participants are encouraged to register early. Online registration will be available starting at 7 a.m. Monday. To register, visit iowaprojectaware.org. Iowa Project Aware, which stands for a Watershed Awareness River Expedition, is a river cleanup event during which volunteers paddle down the river in canoes, picking up trash along the way. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, March 8, 2023 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Brooklyn Jade Bowers, 19, of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, passed away unexpectedly on Saturday, March 4, 2023. Visitation, 2 to 5 p.m. on Sunday, March 12, 2023, at Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services, Cedar Rapids. Funeral service, 12 p.m. on Monday, March 13, 2023, at Gospel Tab- Tabernacle Church, Cedar Rapids, by Pastor Anthony Smith. Burial, Oak Hill Cemetery, Cedar Rapids. Brooklyn was born on August 10, 2003, in Cedar Rapids. She was such a beautiful, bright soul who made any room light up. Brooklyn loved dancing and making hundreds of videos with her family, especially her siblings, nieces, and nephews. If you knew Brooks, you would know she loved everyone and made you feel loved. Memorials may be directed to her family. Please share your love and support with Brooks' family on her tribute wall at stuartbaxter.com. John Dean Sheely, 84, of Marion, Iowa, passed away on March 6, 2023, at Dennis and Donna Aldorf Hospice House of Mercy in Hiawatha. A funeral mass will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Friday, March 10th, at St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Marion, with burial at Mount Calvary Cemetery. Visitation will be held from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. at the church. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Marion is assisting the family. 
John was born on January 12, 1939, in Winthrop, Iowa, the son of Dean and Lillian Hallen and Sheely, and graduated from Winthrop High School. On April 28, 1973, John was united in marriage to Catherine Marie McMillan in Wauquan, Iowa. He began his working career at Winthrop State Bank and later worked at Lefebure in Cedar Rapids. He retired from Rockwell Collins in 2001. He was a member of St. Joseph Parish, and his faith was very important to him. He spent much of his time in prayer for others. John enjoyed fishing, hunting, and spending time with his family. He was an avid Hawkeye sports fan who will be greatly missed by all who knew and loved him. Memorials in John's memory may be directed to St. Joseph's Catholic Church of Marion. Please share his memory of John at MurdochFuneralHome.com. Carolyn Joyce Pollock, 89, of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, passed away March 5, 2023, with family by her side. She was born to the late Leo and Catherine Baldwin on December 20, 1933, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. She shares her birthday with her twin sister, Marilyn Ort. Carolyn was raised in Vinton, Iowa, and graduated from Vinton High School. She married her high school sweetheart, Roy Pollock, on January 23, 1955. They celebrated their 68th wedding anniversary this year. Prior to marriage, Carolyn worked at the phone company in Vinton as an operator, and then again after marriage in Iowa City when Roy was attending the University of Iowa. After graduation, they made their home and raised their family in Cedar Rapids. Visitation 1 to 2 p.m. Saturday, March 11, 2023 at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. Funeral service 2 p.m. Saturday, March 11 at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. A live stream of the funeral service may be accessed on the funeral home website. And two months, Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories Mausoleum. Online condolences are welcome at cedarmemorial.com. John Edward Castelline, 59, of Fairfax, died Saturday, March 4, 2023. Services will be a joint service with his father, Edward Castelline, at Murdoch Linwood on Sunday, March 12, 2023, from 3 to 5 p.m. Burial, Leon Methodist Cemetery in Prophets Township, Illinois. Tea and Funeral Home is caring for John and his family. John Edward Castelline was born on February 10, 1964, in San Jose, California, the son of Edward Lewis and Kay Francis Corcoran Castelline. Memorials may be directed to the family in John's name. Online condolences can be left at tnfuneralhome.com. Joyce Ann Martinek, 80, of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, passed away on March 7, 2023, in her home. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. on Sunday, March 12th, 2023 at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion, Iowa. Visitation will continue at 10 a.m. on Monday, March 13, 2023 at St. Pius X Catholic Church, located at 4949 Council Street, Northeast Cedar Rapids, with a funeral mass following at 11 a.m. Interment will follow at Mount Calvary Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Joyce was born on June 8, 1942 in Hopkinton, Iowa, the daughter of John Albert and Elizabeth Pender McVeigh. She's a graduate of Buck Creek High School and went on to become a nurse's aide. On November 7, 1964, Joyce was united in marriage to James O. Martinek of Hopkinton. She worked as a nurse's aide at Mercy Medical Center in Cedar Rapids for many years and Mercy Hospital in Omaha, Nebraska. Joyce was a member of St. Pius X Catholic Church. She enjoyed sewing crafts and clothes, jigsaw puzzles, playing cards, and spending time with her grandchildren. Joyce will be greatly missed by all who knew and loved her. Memorials in Joyce's memory may be directed to the family. Please share a memory of Joyce at MurdochFuneralHome.com. 
Julia M. Weiss, 100, of Cedar Rapids, died Saturday, March 4, 2023, at Meadowview Memory Care. Friends may visit with the family on Saturday from 9.30 to 11 a.m. at Tian Funeral Home. A private family graveside burial will follow at Mount Calvary Cemetery. Julia was born on January 10, 1923, in Geneva, New York, daughter of Elvino and, Marie, and Mary de, del Provia Lancia. She was the youngest of their five children, christened Giliola, but later shortened her name to Julia or Julie. Julie graduated from Geneva High School and Hamilton Business College, both of Geneva, New York. On September 25, 1943, she was united in marriage to Leland Weiss at St. Francis Church in Geneva, New York. They first met at Sampson Naval Base in Geneva, where Julie worked and Leland was stationed. The couple spent the majority of their 66 years of married life in the Cedar Rapids area. Julie worked outside the home for several area businesses, but primarily she was a homemaker, raising their children. The family has many happy memories of birthday and holiday celebrations at the Wise family home. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the Alzheimer's Association, East Central Iowa Chapter, 317 7th Avenue Southeast, Suite 402, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, 52401. Online condolences can be left at tnfuneralhome.com. Robert M. Smakal, 90, of Cedar Rapids, passed away early Sunday, March 5, 2023. Funeral Mass will be held at 10 a.m. Friday at St. Wenceslas Catholic Church by Father James Brokman. Burial will follow at St. John's Cemetery. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday at Papa Cuba Funeral Home East, 1228 2nd Street Southeast, where a rosary begins at 6.30 p.m. Robert was born October 16, 1932 in Cedar Rapids and was a lifelong resident. He graduated from McKinley High School. Robert married Marlene E. McHugh on August 1, 1961 at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church. Robert had worked at Collins Radio Company, the family-owned Vernon Village grocery store, and was later employed at Paulson Electric Company, retiring in 1996. Memorial donations may be given to Camp Courageous. Martin J. Schulte, 60, of Norway, Iowa, passed away March 2, 2023, peacefully at the Compass Memorial Hospital in Marengo after a lengthy battle with cancer. Martin was born on January 28, 1963, to Edward and Betty T. Hell Schulte of Norway, Iowa. Martin graduated from Norway High School in 1981. After high school, Martin attended Kirkwood Community College to study machining technology. Following college, Martin worked as an, at an automotive machine shop in Fountain Valley, California. Martin worked mainly on exotic import car cylinder heads. Martin often said it was that experience which, which allowed him to really get creative on a small block Chevy. Returning to Iowa, Martin began working as a tool and die maker at the Amana Refrigeration Company, where he worked for 38 years until his retirement in September of 2021. Martin's passion and love for auto racing was a mainstay in his life. Race cars prepared by Martin have accumulated 46 track championships, two IMCA Super National A-Main wins, one IMCA National Championship, and countless feature wins at racetracks throughout the Midwest. Martin served the city of Norway for nearly two decades as council member and later as mayor. Martin, however, was more than just an elected official. He could often be found donating his time and resources on various projects around the town, as well as being more than willing to help anyone in need. Visitation will be held Friday, March 10th, 2023 at St. Michael's Parish Center in Norway, Iowa from 4 to 7 p.m. Funeral Mass will be held Saturday, March 11th at St. Michael's Catholic Church in Norway, Iowa at 10.30 a.m. 
private family burial will be held at a later date. Brosh Funeral Service of Norway is assisting with arrangements. In lieu of flowers, an account has been established at Bank Iowa in Norway with memorials to be donated at a later date. Online condolences can be sent to the family at newhousefuneralservice.com. Merlin L. Crawford, 82, of Keota, Iowa, died Monday, March 6, 2023, at the Washington County Hospital following a sudden illness. Celebration of Life Services will be held at 10.30 a.m. Friday, March 10, 2023, at the Jones and Eden Funeral Home in Washington with Pastor Jason Collier officiating. Calling hours will begin at 2 p.m. Thursday at the Jones and Eden Funeral Home, where the family will be present to receive friends from 5 to 7 p.m. Interment with military honors will take place at the Elm Grove Cemetery. A general memorial has been established. Online condolences may be sent from Merlin's family through the web at jonesfh.com. Merlin was born April 18, 1940 in Burlington, Iowa, the son of Morris Lee and Myra Lucille Turkington Crawford. Merlin attended Prairie Flower Country School and graduated from Washington High School in 1958. He was united in marriage to Margaret Stout on June 18, 1961 in Washington, Iowa. Merlin was a resident of Washington County and farmed west of Washington all of his life. He served in the Army National Guard for 27 years. Merlin was very active in tractor pulls, where he won the state tractor pull in the 1960s. He enjoyed restoring John Deere tractors, hunting, fishing, and traveling out west. Theodore Ted Wolf of Marion died on February 20, 2023, the result of an unfortunate and tragic series of events. Ted was born December 5, 1939 in Kansas City, Missouri, the only child of Virgil and Julia Wolf. Those who knew Ted knew that he was a man of few words. He had just lost the love of his life, Peg Wolf, on December 11, 2022. While he may not have had a lot to say about his terrible loss, you could see the love, adoration, pain, and sorrow in his eyes all through her illness and up until the day she passed away. Peg and Ted met while they both worked at the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. They were married on December 21, 1991, and he would let all who cared to listen know that it was this day that he realized the enormity of his new family. Ted was a woodworker, a welder, gifted carpenter, and could fix about anything. In his younger years, he was a mechanic not only on his vehicles, but also helped local race teams in the Kansas City area. Ted's extended family would like to send their heartfelt appreciation to the Marion Police Department, who never gave up and did an amazing job of following the leads and keeping the family informed. All other local law enforcement areas local enforcement agencies who readily jumped in to help as well. To media quest outdoors for donating billboard space in and around Cedar Rapids while so many people were looking for him. And of course, all the countless volunteers who drove remote roads, flew drones and airplanes, printed and distributed flyers, all while simply never giving up hope that he would be found. We truly appreciate each and every one of you. Please share a memory of Ted at MurdochFuneralHome.com. Ralph Joseph Martin Jr. was born on Mar November 4, 1934 in Iowa City, Iowa, and passed away on November 21, 2022 in Torrance, California. During Ralph's early years, the family lived in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where Ralph attended St. Matthew's Elementary School. When old enough, he was the altar boy for daily mass at 6 a.m. He delivered newspapers, mowed lawns, and shoveled snow after school. The family moved to a farm near Central City, Iowa, and Ralph attended and graduated from Central City High School. He excelled in vocal and instrumental music as well as academics and art. Ralph graduated from Iowa State University in 1956. In 1957, Ralph married Phyllis French in Coggin, Iowa and immediately began his service in the U.S. Army in Korea. 
After his discharge, Ralph and Phyllis moved to Riverside, California, where he took a position with the city planning department. Ralph later joined Victor Grew and Associates in Los Angeles and in 1971 became a partner and later president of Richardson Nagy Martin Architects and Planners in Newport Beach, California. In lieu of flowers, donations are suggested to Western Museum of Flight, 3315 Airport Drive, Torrance, California, 90505. Lillian Marie Parizek Mussel, 100, of Clinton, formerly of Elberon, Iowa, passed away Saturday, March 4, 2023. Funeral services will be 11 a.m. Friday, March 10, 2023 at United Methodist Church, Belle Plaine, Iowa. Visitation will be from 10 a.m. to the service time at the church. The Snell-Zornig Funeral Homes and Crematory is assisting the family. Online condolences may be expressed by visiting her obituary at snellzornig.com. In lieu of flowers, memorials can be made to United Methodist Church in Belle Plaine in Lillian's name. Kenneth D. Nelson, 73, of Iowa City, died Sunday, March 5, 2023, at University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics after a short hospitalization. A celebration of life service will be held Saturday, March 11, 2023, at 11 a.m. at Lansing Funeral Home in Iowa City, Iowa. Visitation begins at 10 a.m. Ken was born April 25, 1949, in Sibley, Iowa, to Cecil and Ruth Gilmahawk Nelson. Ken grew up in the Cedar Falls area and married Marion Skipper May 18, 1973, in Parkersburg, Iowa. He served in the U.S. Air Force and received his bachelor's degree in engineering from the University of Omaha, Nebraska, before returning to Iowa, residing in Manchester until 1995 in Iowa City, where he retired. Ken was always excited to play a round of golf and, and was an advocate for the Boy Scouts of America. Memorials may be made to the family, care of Chris Nelson, and online condolences may be shared at lensingfuneral.com. That concludes today's obituaries. Moving on to today's editorial page, there is one letter to the editor. It is from John Thomas of Coralville. The headline reads, Next Planet Too Far If Earth Becomes Uninhabitable. Space is aptly named, for that is exactly what it is, lots and lots of space. The closely packed stars we see in the night sky are actually separated by unbelievable distances. For example, the closest neighbor to our sun is the star Proxima Centauri. This star may even have a habitable exoplanet, but there is a problem. The fastest speed man has currently plan planned to achieve is 430,000 miles per hour, Parker Solar Probe. At that incredible speed, you could travel from New York to Los Angeles in 20 seconds. Pretty fast and no small accomplishment. Now comes the problem. Even though Proxima Centauri is our closest neighbor, traveling at the highest speed humanity will soon record, it would take us 6,550 years to get there. That's right, 6,550 years. Proxima Centauri is 4.25 light years distant, which equates to 25 trillion miles. It is not very likely that we will choose to scrap Earth in the near future to travel for thousands of years to live in a questionable planetary system. Another aspect of space is that we are well insulated from aliens by the sheer distance of other bodies from Earth. Just as we cannot get there, visitors cannot readily get here. Perhaps we should take better care of planet Earth. I think we are going to be here for a very long time. Again, that letter is from John Thomas of Coralville. Today's guest column on the editorial page is by Nicholas Johnson, who never aspired to becoming GOAT at anything. The headline is, your choices make a difference. Following a concert, a member of the audience approached the pianist, gushing, I'd give anything to play like that, to which the pianist replied, no, you probably wouldn't. 
Taken aback, the audience member asked, why do you say that? The response, because you wouldn't be willing to put in the necessary years of daily practice. Kind of like the lost tourist in Manhattan who asked a stranger, how can I get to Carnegie Hall, and was told, practice, practice, practice. I was reminded of these stories when reading Jeff Lender's Gazette report of the amazing Caitlin Clark's three-point last-second miracle to beat Indiana. What caught my eye was Clark's comment. I shot a lot of those, whether it was with my two brothers in the driveway, a lot by myself. Many household names today began early, Tiger Woods at age three. Thousands of practice hours followed, whether from love of the game or adult pressure. Most of us want to have fun with activities beyond work, not become the GOAT, greatest of all time. A similar fork in the road affects our education. Richard Nixon's Duke Law School classmates nicknamed him Arnbutt because he studied longer hours than anyone else. That's worth sharing with today's college undergraduates. Most of what students gain from their education is the result of their own curiosity, dedication, and effort. Not choosing easy courses to increase their grade point average, but courses to expand their knowledge and skills. Sadly, some schools, students and parents, cheat themselves and deprecate those motives by focusing on the economics of education in a capitalist society. Iowa's universities contribute $15 billion to Iowa's economy. A college degree will add $1 million to your lifetime income. Their goal is the diploma and job. Even if one's goal is increased income, the additional $1 million lifetime income claim is qualified with dozens of variables. As some Facebook users characterize their relationship, it's complicated and reflect on Inc. Magazine's report that over a third of Fortune 500 CEOs are bringing the range of knowledge and skills of a liberal arts education to solving today's unanticipated challenges. Today's cost of a diploma, tuition-associated costs, four years lost wages, can easily run over $100,000 or $200,000. If a student lacks interest in academic study and the goal is future income, the trades may provide more satisfaction and pay than a diploma. An auto mechanic, honest, friendly, and highly skilled, who doesn't charge for minor repairs and gives customers alternative to $2,000 solutions, ultimately will do very well financially compared to the college graduate who's now asking customers, do you want fries with that? Becoming one of the world's best at what you do has satisfactions, but getting there is iffy, even with thousands of practice hours. The goal of being good, not greatest, at a variety of life experiences has different benefits. Fork in the road, your choices make a difference. Moving on to sports, here is Iowa State boys basketball. Wolves still waiting. Helan keeps Marion's first state tournament win since 1952 on hold by Jeff Johnson. It didn't go to overtime, but that was inconsequential. This one hurt for the Marion Wolves again. Sioux City Helan scored 29 points in the fourth quarter and pulled away for a 68-59 win last night in a thriller of a Class 3A boys state basketball tournament quarterfinal at Wells Fargo Arena. Marion, 19-6, came into this tournament with high hopes, a repeat qualifier, and three-seed playing well. But the school's first state tournament win since 1952 remained so frustratingly, agonizingly elusive. The Wolves lost in last year's quarterfinals to Winterset in overtime. Extra time, regulation time, a state tournament loss is a state tournament loss. It's more than just basketball, said Marion coach Pete Messerly. We've been saying it the whole season. It's a bummer to end this way. We didn't play our best game tonight. We definitely didn't play our best basketball, but it was a fun year, agreed Marion's Kalen Claypool. Same type of feeling as last year. It sucks coming all this way and see it go in a close battle against a good team. Marion led by three points after a quarter, by six at halftime, and by one after three. 
and Alex Moda three-pointer gave the Wolves a 49-48 lead with 5.15 left. But Helan, 19-6, rattled off 12 straight points for a 60-49 edge, and that was that. The Crusaders play either Cedar Rapids Xavier or Des Moines Hoover in Thursday's semifinals. Class 2A, Little Hawkeye Conference shows its might again. Conference stalwart Pella Christian ousts MFL Marmac by Jeff Johnson. It's called the Little Hawkeye Conference, but there's absolutely nothing little about it. The eight-school league is a behemoth when it comes to boys' basketball. It has had a state championship team the last four years in Class 3A. Oskaloosa in 2019, Norwalk in 2020, Pella in 2021, and Dallas Center Grimes last year. It has a state qualifier this year in three separate classes. Norwalk in 4A, Newton in 3A, and Pella Christian in 2A. That's a power conference, folks. And the ultimate dream of three state titles remained alive Monday night when Pella Christian knocked off gutty MFL Marmac 61-54 in a 2A quarterfinal at Wells Fargo Arena. Every night is like this for us, said Pella Christian's Avery Stoltz. It's great preparation for us. This MFL Marmac team, meanwhile, played in the mostly 1A Upper Iowa Conference and had a very small starting lineup that consisted of one guy 5'11", three who are 6'1", and a big at 6'2". Yet the Bulldogs have a bunch of good athletes and a really good sophomore player in Zach Driscoll and proved they belonged on this stage. Their top four scorers return next season, so perhaps this was just a dress rehearsal, so to speak. MFL Marmac finished 24-2. Poor shooting foils Monticello. Offense goes cold in second half, allowing Wolfpack to pull away by Jeff Johnson. Some year, some year, Monticello boys basketball team keeps getting these opportunities, keeps going to the state tournament. Eventually, the Panthers will get a title, at least get to a championship game. It just didn't happen this year. Western, Western Christian was too large, too good, and Monty missed too many shots in Tuesday afternoon's Class 2A quarterfinals. The Wolfpack pulled away in the second half and posted a 69-44 victory to end a good Panther season, another good Monticello season. We've got a lot of good kids coming up, and we'll just keep battling, trying to keep, keep trying to get back and keep trying to do our thing, said Monticello coach Tim Lambert. This Panthers team overcame a lot of injuries, including a significant shoulder one to four-year starting point guard Tate Peterson. Not many players start at that position, any position, four times at the state tournament, but the Kirkwood Community College signee did just that. Unfortunately, he went out with a game in which he scored 10 points and made only four of 14 shots from the, from the field, his injury obviously a factor. That poor shooting thing was something just about all the Panthers suffered from, as Monty shot just 29.8% from the field, including 5 of 27 in the second half. It was a 32-28 game at halftime with Western, 21-3, taking over in the third quarter and building a 46-34 lead. Western Christian was the 2A field's third seed to Monticello's sixth. We just couldn't get over the hump the whole game, Peterson said. We'd get close. We just couldn't get over the hump. Then they made a run, and we just kind of collapsed. We had some good looks early in the third. We just couldn't make any of them, Lambert said. Then they just started snowballing the offense, and we weren't getting any stops then. They just blew it out. I told the kids it ended up being 20-some points, but it really wasn't that type of a game. Preston Rees, the University of Iowa football recruit, had a team-high 17 points, though only two came after half. Carson Lambert, the coach's nephew, had 11 points and seven rebounds. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, March 8, 2023. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.